Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy. I'm the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. It's good to be with you. I'm joined by a few of my colleagues. Uh, of course, we've got Ryan Sweet. Ryan's the director of real-time economics. It's good to have you, Ryan. Good to be here, Mark. Yep. Took you a little bit of a pause there. I don't know. You're slow. I'm getting on over. I'm getting over a man cold. So it's been plaguing me all week. So I'm on the mend. What is a man cold? Yeah. Why is that different from a, a cold? Oh, so I, when I get sick in my household, I'm the yeah. worst. I'm like, I, I'm oh, in bed for a while. My wife yeah. had the same thing and she bounced back in the day and she's like, you must, you know, it must affect men more than women. I'm, I'm with you on that. Totally agree. Yeah. See, it, I said, if it's, it's, it's factually correct. And she's like, no, it isn't. She's like, get Fauci on your podcast <laughs> and ask him that question. About the man call. About the man mm -hmm. call. That's a good idea. Uh, we should get him on here, try to get him on. And we got Chris Dorides. Chris is the deputy chief economist. Uh, how are you feeling, Chris? You in tip top uh, feel, shape? Feeling great. I think uh, audio's uh, loud and clear this week. So, yes, indeed. <laughs> Finally, you got it together over there, buddy. Good <laughs> way to go. And we've got Marissa, Marissa Di Natale. Good, good to have you on the podcast. Marissa, Thanks. great to be here. And uh, Marissa, I know what you do, but what's your title? Uh, you know, uh, how, how would you, well, how do we, how do we call you? What do we, what should we call you? Well, I'm a senior director. Okay. And head of global forecasting. That's it. I knew it. It was a big, a big deal. Glo head of global forecasting. And by the way, listener, uh, it, it's key to have Marissa on this week because we're, the big topic is the philosophy of forecasting. So a lot to think about there and glad to have Marissa on board. Marissa is uh, located in one of the best places on the planet, uh, Newport Beach. Do I have that right? Newport Beach, California? I'm south of Newport Beach. I'm in Dana Point. Okay. Oh, I'm south Dana of Point. Newport. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm in Orange yeah. County. That's a step down from Newport Beach. No, not really. It, it is considered quite a step down from Newport Beach in, in some circles. Yes. Is that right? When did you move from, you used to be out here with us. You kind of abandoned us. How long ago was that? Um, really? I wouldn't say I abandoned you. Yeah. I've always been with you in spirit, if not physically. That's true. Um, That's true. Uh, six years ago, I've been in California for six years. So you must be like a gazillionaire by now. You, <laughs> you, you bought a home. Did you buy a home six years ago? I hope you did. No, I bought a home three years ago. Well, still, you're a half a gazillionaire. No? Yeah, it's pretty crazy what the value yeah. of home is right now. Yeah. So, so can I ask what's the value? No, you don't need to tell me. Oh, don't tell me. Wow. I'd love to know though. I'd love to know. I, I can, we can discuss offline. Offline. Okay. All right. Uh, Marissa, you, uh, before you joined, how long ago was it when you joined Moody's Analytics? You joined the team? Well, it was 2004. So it was still economy.com. It was right. before Moody's bought economy.com. Got it. So that was how long? Boy, that's uh, yeah. I'm coming up on my 17 year anniversary. Year anniversary. Something. Yeah, very good. And you came to us from Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did in DC. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you do for BLS? I worked on the current population survey, the household survey, and I uh, was in the office that I wrote the employment report. Oh, you did. So yeah. are you are you? Like bummed out when people kind of criticize a household number saying, you know, that don't pay attention to it because it's a small, I think it's 60,000 households, isn't it? Or, it is. Yeah. yeah. Pretty small sample or 
compared to the establishment survey, did sure, that ever yeah. bum you out or? Uh, no, I think if you if you know what it is and what it's measuring and what its what its drawbacks and strengths are, then I think people understand the differences between the two. I mean, it's true with any survey, right? Regardless of size, there's going to be some some error margin of error in there. So certainly, when you're data mining that set for very specific things, you're going to run into huge standard errors. But um, data mining. I, Who's I don't, doing that? Who are you, who are you accusing? A lot of researchers. A lot of researchers use the the current population survey micro data yeah. to to look at you know very uh, very fine cuts of demographics or or you know geographies things like that that um, once you start cutting and cutting and you know looking at Hispanic female fifteen year olds who live in. Chester County, you're going to have a huge margin of error when you start cutting things that way. But yeah, I hear I, I mentioned Dana Point's beautiful uh, Newport Beach area. You have crows outside. What's going on outside your window? You had to you had to beat them off of something with a stick, or what's going on? Um, there are these enormous crows, or they might be ravens. I think they're crows, and they live here in the trees and on the power lines, and they're the size of a small dog and they're oh, extremely loud. That sounds like a Hitchcock movie. I'm just it's, saying. It, yeah, we were just joking about that. Yeah, they'll, they'll land on my roof and it sounds like there's a person jumping up and down on my roof. That's how big they are. Well, I want you to know, Marissa. Terrifying. I was on my, before I came in to do this podcast, I was on my back deck and there were these beautiful little hummingbirds I have those too. Oh, I have hummingbirds really? okay. too. Yeah. The yeah. crows are probably out there eating them right now. And of course I'm only in, you know, pedestrian suburban Philly. So, and I've got, well, that's life. where I'm from Mark. So yeah, I have love for Chester County as well. Well, uh, I think we should move on. What do you think, Marissa? We should. Yes. I, sure. Okay. I, we've caught up. Um, so um, as you know, uh, and I know you're a careful listener to our podcast that we begin with the statistics before we move into the big topic, which again, today is the philosophy for, for forecasting. And um, I'm going to really mix it up. I'm, Marissa, you're going first. You are going to go first. Oh, usually good. I, usually I make Ryan go first, but I, you know, this time let's just really mix it up here. So, uh, and you, you've played the game, right? You, you tell us a statistic, you don't tell us what it is, but we have to, based on our, Hey, by the way, I should tell you this. Last week we did a podcast. Remember, uh, Ryan, your statistic was Chinese GDP, one point three percent. Right. And I got it right. Correct. Am I right? Am I right about you, that? I got you, that. You I did get it. it right. So I've got people throwing shade at me, saying that must have been a, the fix. Must be in. They, you must have told me before the podcast what this. No, was. no, we never share. Exactly. Exactly. Nope. I want everyone to no li- hear. Everyone out there to hear that we don't share. This is. We take this deadly seriously. Okay, Marissa, with that as a backdrop, what's your statistic? Okay, well, first let me preface this by saying that Ryan was trying to get in my head and psych me out all day yesterday. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's games going on. So, okay, the statistic, actually I would like to do two, but let me do the the one right now. You see what happens? She comes on and she's trying to change the rules already. I mean, come on. Okay. I have, okay. So the statistic I would like to use is actually from last week. It, it oh. came 
out last week. Okay, fair enough. Okay. You guys didn't talk about it. It didn't come up in previous conversations. Okay. So is it still fair game? Yeah, yeah, it is. yeah far away. Sure. Yep. Yeah, the statistics that came out this week, none of them really spoke to me. And it was a lot of housing, which you know, I figured Chris would use those. So well, who knows? Who knows? Uh, who knows? But <laughs> probably we're forecasters and probably. Okay. So my statistic is 39% in June. 39%. 30, and this was last week. In June, but it refers to June. Yes. Yeah, okay, this month so, over month, year over year. Is it a growth rate? No. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's it's like a diffusion index or uh, no? She's shaking her head no. Uh, give us a hint. Got to give us a hint. It's something, just, it's a percentage. A percentage. 39% yes. percent of something. <clears throat> uh, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, can you give us, can you give us a hint without giving it away? We should know this, you're saying. You think we should know this. This is in our strike zone or close to. Yes, but it's a release with a lot of numbers. So this might be a little sweet ass. Oh, it might be one of those hidden. Should I tell you what the release is? And then. Yeah, yeah, fire, yeah tell us the release. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's from the NFIB. Oh, Ooh, I should have known that. Is this yes. Which. Well, the percent of, of firms that said they were raising prices, that was more like, that was higher. That was like 49%, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I think that was the highest, it might have been the highest on record, or you have to go back to the 80s, you know. Yeah, that. that's true. So 39%. You're a labor the, market person, so maybe yeah. a percent of firms that say they can't fill an open position. Yeah. Trouble hiring. That's wrong. Not plan on increasing compensation. 39% say they're going to increase compensation. Close. Oh. It's, oh it is... The percent of firms that are actually raising compensation. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. There's a second question. I think of, I get that one. Plan on. Yeah, Ryan. Ryan gets the prize. No, no, he, he does not. Yes. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> so, so none of you do. Yeah. It's the. No, it's the oh, can it's I the, ask though? How high is that? I mean, how put some context. It is. It is the highest ever recorded, going back oh. to the inception of the survey. So. 39% of respondents, these are small businesses that report to the National Federation of Independent Business, said that they actually raised comp in the month of June. Yeah. Highest ever. And it was, yes. And it's a little bit higher than where it was, you know, prior to the pandemic start. We had a very tight labor market, obviously. So all these surveys were also showing employers saying jobs are hard to fill and there might be upward wage pressure. It almost... It, it was that was kind of like the second highest data point, but this is the highest in a single month. That is a really good one. I'd have to say kudos. Yeah, good job. That was really, you know, Chris should have known that, but you know, not working hard <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah, he's off today. Well, he doesn't have a cold. Okay, so you said you had two. You want to do the second one? So the second one has to do with our topic of discussion today. So oh, we okay, could maybe save Wait. it. Or the intro to that. Okay. Well, let's do that. We'll, we'll in okay. fact do that. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, Chris, you're up. Uh, All right. The week? This one did come out this week. 0 0.09. 0 
Is that wow. a change? Uh, nope, it in, is. Um, it is an index. Uh huh. Is it one of your weird housing surveys, like from Fannie Mae? Or- nope. 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 This is a uh, a well, indicator. Well, this is an indicator that's covered on Economic View. It is. Uh, shout out to Sarah Crane for for covering it. So. Ag she prices. covers. She covers. Oh, it's from the. Is it from the Chicago? Manufacturing. Oh, I no, wait. Uh-oh. No, no, no. I know. 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 The the but only because I fed activity index. The, that is correct. There you I, go. I got yeah. But Marissa, I, I think I, I think she was there first. Actually, that's right, Marissa. Yeah. You'll get used to it. We get Mark yeah. 90, 95% of the way there, and then he, you know, slams it home. <laughs> that's 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 sort of true. That is sort of true. I wouldn't have gotten it without Marissa. That's definitely true. So explain that statistic, Chris. What is that statistic? So this is a measure put out by the the Federal Reserve of Chicago. It's a composite of 85 economic indicators that are designed to measure overall activity and assess um, inflationary pressure. It is, uh, it's down, right? So it's it's down from last month. Last month it was 0.26. And I should say the the measure is uh, centered around zero for trend growth. Right, mm-hmm. so measure of zero is trend growth. If you're positive, it's it's greater than trend. Negative is, is below trend. Uh, so it's still it's positive. It's still uh, faster than trend, but it is slowing. So it does suggest that we're losing some momentum in the economy. Uh, of the of the components, uh, according to Sarah, production, consumption, and the employment factors were all down. That's what what pulled it down. Only sales activity was up. Hmm. This is the month of June for the month of for the June. month of June. Correct. And just so everyone knows, this is my interpretation. Trend growth means enough growth to maintain stable unemployment. So if you're above trend, you should be getting enough job creation for unemployment to decline, right? Yeah, that's that's fair. And of course, that statistic goes up and down and all around month to month. I mean, I think if you take a step back, it's still up pretty strongly, right? It's still indicating growth above trend, uh, growth that's sufficient to bring unemployment down. Yep. Uh, right. So she reports a three-month average of uh, 0.06. So oh, three-month average. Uh, so it's smooth, and it was 0.8, right? So it's actually been uh, yeah. slowing considerably. But on a six-month average, it's it's been pretty stable around 0.35, right? So okay. that indicates some. Yeah. Overall, the, the growth is still there, but it's uh, it's signaling at least some some slowdown here or some potential for slowdown here. You know, something is I'm getting a lot of questions about now. Or maybe I'll wait to my statistic before I bring this up. But this could, in fact, the point, the, the question is around the Delta variant and that, what kind of impact that's starting to have. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Oh, I hope I didn't give my statistic away. Don't I already know what it is. Or do you really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a slip up. They call that a slip up, Marissa. Yeah. But you guys would have needed a, a hint anyway. So we'll, but I'll, I'll let Ryan go next. Ryan, what's your statistic? All right. I'm not going to go out to decimal places like uh, Chris did, but. Straight, hundred and fifty-two thousand. Hundred and fifty-two thousand. Hundred and fifty-two thousand. Came out this week. It came out this week. Feels like it comes from the claims report. No. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. Pandemic U- initial UI. That that was like a hundred thousand. That was one hundred fifty thousand. A hundred and fifty-two thousand. Is it something buried in the bowels of the existing home sales numbers? 
Uh, no, you're on the right track. It's a housing statistic. statistic? Uh-huh. It is. So, Chris, you should know this. What would that I should, be? But- yeah, 152,000. You know, it, it's, it feels like something like uh, the number of uh, homes, new home, newly built homes for sale or something, some really low number. Is that? You're getting closer. I know you guys are going to yell at me for this one, but this one's really important. It's really? a really important number that uh, we track. Okay, give us one more hint and then we're going to, we'll give. All right. It is, all right, so it's housing. Okay, housing. And it's something that will help cool the housing market, house supply. price growth. Right, so the supply. But, so it's supply. Permits of some sort. Uh, yeah, Getting closer. is too low. Too low. Yeah. Uh, is it mortgage applications? Nope. No. All right, I'll, I'll, I won't let you I'll, 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 I'll throw one thing out there. I'm just throwing it against, throwing, mm. you know, just throwing flack out there number of manufactured homes built on an analyzed rate <laughs> no but that's, that's oh, a good guess no. <laughs> i'm close though i'm close it is something so, like that all right it is the number of homes uh that are permitted but haven't begun yet so it's a future sign of uh, housing supply that's coming highest since the the housing boom in 06 say that again what is it so it's the number of homes that are permitted, but not started. So it's kind of like the pipeline of new construction that's coming. And that's the highest since 2006. So it's between a permit and a start. Correct. Oh, I see. So it's possible it doesn't get built, right? Also. Yeah, cancellations, things like that. But for the most part, yep. you know, that, that cancellation rate is pretty low. Well, you know, Brian, it might be different though. I mean, I mean, it might be the supply side effects, right? The builders just don't want to, they got the permit. They're just holding it in the permanent inventory, so to speak, because mm-hmm. they don't actually want to go out and buy the lumber and the materials at these inflated prices. So maybe that's reflecting. Well, lumber prices have come down a lot. They're still high, yeah. right? They're still yeah. double what they were pre-pandemic. So right. maybe so they're waiting. If I were them, I'd wait another few weeks to see if it comes down even more, maybe, right? Right. You know? So. Oh, I was optimistic. I was like, here, here comes some more housing supply. But, no, no, I, but that that stuff it's going to come. It's there. There's reason to be yeah. optimistic, but you know. I, oh, yeah, I agree with the timing. We don't know when, yeah. but it's going to come. Yeah, it's going to come. All right, I'm going to give you kind of a layup because uh, uh, we're, we're getting really tough with these statistics. Four point one trillion. This is a layup. Should be a layup if you're paying attention. It came out this week. Well, it's a statistic. What does it mean to come out this week? <laughs> it 4. happened 4.1 trillion i'll give you another statistic another related statistic 3.5 trillion oh my goodness oh the fiscal <laughs> policy there, yes because well, okay chris so what is democrats it? versus okay right so 4.1 trillion is the total sum of the fiscal support being proposed by uh, in Congress, the, that's the, that's the three point five trillion dollar reconciliation, so-called recon- budget reconciliation package uh, that uh, that uh, the Senate Democrats are working on, and plus the six hundred billion. Did my arithmetic right? Yeah, six hundred billion in um, uh, infrastructure spending uh, for the bipartisan bill that the Democrats and Republicans are working on. So four point one trillion in total spending. Uh, 
uh, tax credits uh, to support uh, infrastructure and social investments going forward. For, that's a lot of money, a big, big number. And that, that really will have uh, what happens with that legislation, whether it gets through to law in, in, in what form and to, to what degree, what size, goes a long way to determining our outlook, uh, our forecast for the economy. And we're getting pretty close to coming up to the big topic, the philosophy of forecasting. So uh, very important. Um, before we get there, though, uh, the statistics we've been following week to week, anything interesting happening with 10-year Treasury yields, Ryan? Anything we should note? They're, they're still going down, I think, right? What were they? No, they ticked they, back up. So we're, Have they? Uh, yeah, last time I checked earlier this morning, like 1.3. Okay. So last week, we were, we were flirting with 1.2. So we're up a little bit. Yeah. And if you go back a few weeks ago, a month ago, it was 1.5, 1.6. So we're down mm -hmm. 20, 30 basis points. Correct. So it, of that, how much of that is more technical related to debt ceiling, bond issuance, that kind of thing? How much of that is more fundamental related to bond investors growing nervous about the Delta variant? Uh, yeah, it's almost evenly split, like 50-50, because yeah. you, you have inflation expectations that come down quite a bit. So that's bringing the tenure down by probably 10, 15 basis points. And they're probably the rest is these technical issues on top of the Delta variant. I would group yeah. those two together. By the way, the other statistic I was thinking about doing, which you wouldn't have gotten, but I, you know, it would have been unfair. That's why I didn't do it. But it's a, it was a good one, was the uh, purchasing manager index for the UK. It just came out this morning or this afternoon. 57.7 uh, uh, in June. That's down from 62.2 in uh, May. And if you go look at the, the commentary, a lot of the slowdown is in transportation and leisure and hospitality, which is feels like Delta variant is having an impact. Obviously, the UK being significantly impacted by by the variant. Do, uh, are you guys noticing anything in, in the, our data at all, the macro data for the US, uh, suggesting that the variant is having any kind of impact on the economy, macro, uh, macro or regional impact? Have you seen anything yet? No? So for that, I would look at like open table, nothing really there yet. Uh, the Google mobility, not, nothing that screams Delta variant. Uh, you know, the weakness in jobless claims, which is Chris's number, uh, that's, that's seasonal adjustment problems. That's not Delta variant. The one thing that's been weak is the home-based data. But I don't know if that is Delta variant. It might be too early. What's that? What's the home-based data for everybody? Oh, so this measures hours worked, number of people on employment. It's like a good high frequency indicator of the job market. Right. Uh, you know, we put that back to normal index together, which is a compilation of a lot of the statistics you just mentioned, including some government data. <clears throat> we do it at the state level. And I have noticed that our uh, back to normal index, which is equal to 100 uh, right before the pandemic, is falling uh, back for Florida. If you go back a few weeks, say, say a month, six weeks ago, Florida was actually all the way back. It's, it's back to normal index was over 100 back to pre-pandemic, but now it's back down to the low 90s. So um, you know, I wonder if uh, that might be, because Florida has been hit pretty hard by the Delta and there's a lot of hospital, in addition to infections, there's a lot of hospitalizations there. So maybe we're seeing some ill effects there, but it's really pretty modest at this point. If there's any effect, it's really on the margin. Yeah, okay. I think give it a month or two and we'll start to see it in there in other states because even here in California, mask mandates are back in LA County um, and in, and in uh, parts of Northern California. And I think other counties here are looking at doing that. And 
if that happens, right, it's just people are going to be going out less in general. Yeah. What do you think it would take for the Delta variant to become a macro, U.S. macroeconomic issue for it to actually affect the economy in a negative way? The macro economy, not a state, not a city, but a show up in the macro data. I mean, it would ha- it would have to be widespread business restrictions and and lockdowns again. But I can't envision that happening. What if schools did not reopen for in person learning? Would that be enough? Yeah, yeah. that would that, that would, would certainly enough. show up in the data. Certainly, certainly show up in the data. Yeah, just even you know all the stuff you guys have been talking about the last few weeks about labor force participation, people staying out of the labor force to care for kids labor supply shortages, that would certainly worsen those things, I think. You know, guys, I think maybe next week or the week after, we might want to have a uh, podcast on this variant, uh, talk about the, because this is global. You know, we, I was just yep. talking to Steve Cochran, the, our, uh, our uh, chief economist out in APAC, and he was, uh, uh, Asia's in trouble. I mean, Singapore's shutting down again. Malaysia, Indonesia uh, have real problems with the pandemic. So we may want to uh, uh, revisit this. Um, uh, in a week or two. Um, Chris, your statistic is UI claims, and as Ryan alluded to, did something weird last week? What happened? Yeah, they jumped up, uh, up 51,000 from the week before to 419,000. Um, but as, as Ryan mentioned, there are a lot of measurement issues that you know, may discount uh, that movement. So seasonal factors are certainly one. You do have the auto industry uh, scaling back because of the chip shortages. And then also just uh, definitely, I, I got some questions about this, uh, this measure from, from some clients, just in terms of how, these, how UI benefit uh, initial claims actually work, right? So clearly there's a case where you get laid off, you apply for benefits, your claim may be rejected, in which case you, have to, you may apply again. So you might be counted multiple times. And then also if you are on UI and then you're applying for an extension, that also would show up as a initial claim. So mm. you have to take that all into account when you're looking at this number. So it could be inflated, if you will, for those reasons, above and beyond just weakness in the economy overall. So I think uh, important to watch, the four-week moving average is uh, 385,000. That's that's still flat. So it's indicating things aren't really getting worse at this point, but um, yeah, uh, certainly something we want to- so, so Ryan, I know you use, or at least historically, you use UI claims as one of the in- key inputs into your estimate of the job number uh, for the for the month. So uh, do you have an early estimate? I know it's early because this doesn't come out until it's two weeks from now, isn't it? It's two weeks, right. But claims were for the payroll reference period. Yeah, exactly. So does that, what are you thinking? Do you have a sense of things for the June number at this point? Yeah, I have a number. Uh, I'm not using claims. So the model uses claim now because uh, what Chris was saying about the seasonal adjustment issues, it's around auto retooling. Normally, this time of year, auto manufacturers shut down, retool their plants. That can cause a lot of you know, vol- uh, uh, variability in the data. Timing of the July 4th holiday can throw off claims earlier in the month. So mm. July is one month that, you know, my little you know, things to do list for forecasting employment is like, don't use claims in July. Yeah. So what's your number, your preliminary number, just to get a sense of it? Uh, 850. Oh, okay. A strong number. Cause last yeah. week, last month we got, what did we get? 850. Yeah. Right around yeah. there again. Oh, right, right. Okay. You think it, anything, any particular thing going on 
Any reason oh, yeah. why? Yeah, I mean, the strengths can be inflated again by residual seasonality. I mean, there's always okay. this tendency for leisure and hospitality to be weak in July. That might not happen this time around. State and local government education is always very strong. So these two factors combined, you know, really should juice it. Got it. Okay. And my uh, the statistic I've been following week to week is copper prices, because that's a Dr. Copper window into global economic conditions and inf- inflationary pressures. And that continues to be very strong, $4.35, at least last time I looked, $4.35 a pound. Anything over four bucks, that's a, that's a rip-roaring economy. Uh, three is dollars a pound is typical. Anything closer to two, which is what we saw back in the teeth of the pandemic, uh, would be with, uh, consistent with a weak economy. So copper says things are still strong out there. Uh, inflationary pressures are still uh, uh, quite intense. So um, uh, no abatement there. Okay. Uh, anything else on the statistics before we move on? Anybody want to bring up? I thought that was uh, pretty good. Okay. Uh, before I dive in, Marissa, uh, did you want to bring up your next, your second statistic? You said it was related to the topic of the philosophy of forecasting and you are the head of global forecasting. So no better person to have on to talk about the philosophy of forecasting than you. You let you drive all the trains. I, and, and I will say you are key to our operations. Uh, you make things work. Uh, and, and I will say if there's one disadvantage to being in, in uh, Dana Point, Newport Beach, is the time zone, right? Because you feel like, you must feel like a little bit out of sorts there, right? Because if we have a 7.30 a.m. meeting in Westchester on the East Coast of, of the U.S., that's what, 12.30 London, that's p.m., 1.30 p.m. Prague, that's, I don't know, 4.30 p.m., Dubai, that's 7.30 p.m. I'm pretty good at this. Uh, yeah, Singapore, this that's 9.30 p.m. <clears throat> Sydney, and that's 4.30 a.m. Dana Point. That's if you have a 7.30 a.m. meeting in Westchester, I don't attend it. You don't? You shouldn't have told me that. I had no idea. I thought you were there. You never have 7.30 a.m. meetings in Westchester. Oh, see, she doesn't. In Westchester. Missing. Yeah, yeah, no, I ha- I do all the time. What are you talking about? No, I don't. Well, I'm not invited to them, so it doesn't affect oh, me, I guess. All right. Okay. No, I, I work Westchester hours. So, I mean, I'm frequently on meetings at 5, 5.30, Oh, you do? Oh, so yeah. you, oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, yeah. you're, oh, okay. So, so when it's, when it's like 5, or you don't leave at 5, say 6 p.m. Eastern, you're done at three. Yeah. At three in the afternoon. I, I, it's, it's nice. I mean, I was never a morning person. I don't think I still would classify myself as a morning person, but um, it's nice to have the whole afternoon. Now I understand how you become such a good uh, surfer. This is how it happened. You, you have like, I've never surfed in my life, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've been told you you're a great surfer. I've seen, I've seen scuba diver. Scuba no, diver. I've never oh, surfed in my life. See, she's I, I, I have, yeah, I, I have scuba I heard you were in the Olympic trials. Someone who's telling me that. No, 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 that's all wrong. This is definitely not me. Okay. I do outrigger canoeing. Oh, well, close. That's close. It's in the water. Yeah. It's in the water. <laughs> oh, anyway, we, we digress. Uh, we digress. So what's your uh, statistic? Yeah. So my statistic is 18.3% 
And that's a seasonally adjusted annualized rate. 18.3% in a recent it, indicator. From a recent indicator. And it has something to do with forecasting. I wouldn't, no, it's not a no. recent indicator. Oh, it's not a recent indicator, oh. but it has something to do with forecasting. It is a forecast. It, oh, it is that a That number forecast. is a forecast. That number is a forecast. Whose forecast? Yours. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> oh, I, oh no. She's going to the... nasty. I can feel it. I can feel this it Mark's already. Average... No, this, is a, this is just a segue into the topic that we're going to be talking about. And I thought this was a nice. Okay. Well, now I'm nice starting to sweat. Wait a little bit. I'm going to I'm gonna have to, you know, I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves here. Okay. All right. I got to I gotta get ready for game. Okay. Is this Mark's average error on no. residential housing starts? No. No. Thank you, Ryan. Oh, wow. We're coming back to that. We're coming back to that one. I can feel this. This is they're ganging up on me, guys. It's gonna turn into a listener. roast. Yeah, I'm gonna 18. All right. Eight, eight, say it again. 18.3%. I thought you guys would would get this. Get this right away, huh? Uh 18.3%. Eighteen point three percent. It's a forecast. Jeez, do you guys have any clue? The year no. over year forecast. No, it's not year over year. It's annualized. It's a quarterly yeah. annualized per percent change. Okay. I don't. I don't know. No. Oh, it um, has something to do with the stock market. No. Personal uh, income. No. All right. We're on. Uh, okay. We give up. What is it? Yeah. Car prices. Car prices. I just want to name every, every variable that we forecast. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is, the it, is the, <laughs> it is the GDP forecast that we uh, made for the second quarter of 2020 uh, in late March, right after the pandemic started. Hey, wait, that's pretty, that was a pretty good, what was it, was the actual number? Minus 31%. Oh, geez. Annualized? Oh, this is Q2. This is Q2. <laughs> this is Q2. This is Q2. That's right. This is just Q3. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, what? Uh, so you're saying in late March. Do you remember back in March, we had, when the pandemic started in March 2020, we did our March forecast. And as yeah. publishing it, like literally the day after we published it, every place went into lockdown. Right. And we had yeah. to redo the forecast yeah. later at the end of March because we knew that that original forecast was going to be obviously very wrong. So we had two, we have two vintages of a March 2020 forecast. Okay. So the, so I think the that's first, the only time that ever happened, right? It, it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. That's right. Um, and what was the first one? That we made that decision to do that. Right, and you're and you're saying our GDP forecast for yeah. Q2 was eight was eighteen positive eighteen. Oh, because we had this big no no oh, no I know. minus eighteen minus oh. eighteen. Oh, minus uh, I would have gotten it if it was minus. Oh. Did I say? Did I not say said, minus? No, no, you said. Well, at least I heard positive eighteen. That's I heard why positive. I'm so confused. Yeah, yeah. Oh, got see, it. Okay. Maybe we yeah. can edit that part out. I meant <laughs> yeah. to say- There's no edits. Call, 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 talk about forecast error. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> well, that wasn't a forecast error. That was a mental error. Yeah. Okay. I got it now. Okay. So you're saying when we 
at the end of March, of course, all hell broke loose mid-March. By the end of March, we said, look, the world has changed uh, because of the pandemic. We're going to have to update our forecast. And by the way, for all the listeners, March 2020 was the month in which large financial institutions first adopted the Cecil accounting standard. Remember the Cecil account? That's a, that yep. is a huge, massive accounting change around loan loss provisioning that the whole entire banking system, all the regulators, all the accountants, everyone was really up in arms, nervous about this. And March was the first time we did this. And so in that month, for the first time ever, and we've been doing forecasts for 30 years, we had to run two forecasts in that month, one at the beginning of the month when we normally do it, and because of the pandemic, one of the month. And what you're saying is at the end of the month, we forecasted for Q2 of 2020, minus 18, and it came in at minus 30. That's what you're saying. Right. Got it. Got it. So we actually, good forecaster. How do, how do you feel about that forecast? Do you think we did a good job given what we knew at the time or, or not? Um, yeah, you, given what we yeah. knew at the time, I, I think it was. And actually, if you look at the annual average for 2020, it doesn't look as bad. Well, I thought you just said that was good. Doesn't look as bad. I said, yeah. Look, okay. It's all a matter but of it framing. Could be, it could have been better. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been, been better. Yes, but here, here's the point, though. Uh, the, I think the most important contribution we made at that point in time was providing the framework for trying to understand what was going on in the economy. You know, many, not all, but many recessions are caused by demand side shocks to the economy. You know, consumers pack it in and stop spending, businesses stop investing. This was a massive supply side shock to the economy. And I, now that I say it and everyone's lived this, this is, sounds, feels like, oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. But back in late March, that was not obvious to people. That took a lot of work and insight. And we had to really do a lot of work trying to understand what was happening to the supply side of the economy, to output, and then figuring out what it meant for the rest of the economy. So I think that was really the key insight that it wasn't, of course, we weren't the only ones you know, coming to that insight. There was others that came to it as well. But I mean, I think that was providing that framework for, for our clients to try to understand how to think about this and what it, what it would mean for the for the outlook, I think was was uh, most important, not the number uh, per se. But interesting that that was good. Yeah, I think if you said minus eighteen, Marissa, I'm pretty sure. Right, right, Ryan. Don't you think we would have gotten? Did that? I really not? We would have gotten it. Yeah, I think she's. You I said eighteen point three percent. That's yeah. why we were throwing out all these positive. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No worries. Well, that, no worries. well, that was a bust. No, 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 no. I liked. I liked. That was very. That was very informative. That was very informative. Okay, but. Uh, now we're talking about forecasting. And, oh, and I was saying all these nice things about you too before that. Uh, you are key, You and I, all jokes aside, you are critical to uh, our effort. Uh, our, uh, you know, uh, everything revolves around, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, around you. Uh, I mean, the, the energy, effort, work, the thoughtfulness, the care that you put in. Okay, I'm not, that's it. That's the last thing I'm gonna say that's nice about you. Because Thank you, that's very kind. You know, but it's very true. So, but you're the right person to have on this con in this conversation around uh, philosophy forecasting. And I want to begin with um, the question to whoever wants to, to tackle it first. We've all been doing forecasting a long time. Uh, I longer than anybody, but we're all been doing it a long time. What forecast 
uh, are you most proud of? And then I'm going to ask you what forecast are you most uh, disappointed in? But uh, um, whoever wants to take that, uh, what, do you, what forecast are you most proud of? Anybody? Not proud of the forecast? Chris, Ryan, Marissa? All right. I'm, I, I, actually, I'm, I'm personally proud of many forecasts. I, I could, yeah, I was gonna say. I could, I could take another hour, two hours, you know, talking about <laughs> my forecast prowess, but you don't want that. So, so since Marissa brought up minus eighteen point three percent, I was pretty proud of our high frequency GDP model throughout the pandemic. It got pretty close. I mean, you know, the forecast error is much larger than it was pre-pandemic. Okay. But explain what that is. So our high frequency US GDP model is essentially a bean counting approach. So all this data that we talk about on the podcast, as it comes out, it feeds into this model and it you know counts up bottom bottom up you know uh, all the components of GDP, and then estimates on a daily basis what GDP is tracking. And you know during out, throughout the pandemic, it was it was getting pretty close. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's done a marvelous job. And what's it forecasting for the? The current quarter, because we're going to get that number next week, GDP, next week. right? For Q2. Yep, so it will it will change because we have we get durable goods next week. But right now, it's 7.8% annualized. You notice uh, Brian's a particularly good forecaster because before he gives you his forecast, he gives you all, oh, this, that, you know, we got more data coming in, you know, it's going to get more accurate. It's, it's, just, it's the truth. It's, so what's the number for, what, do you, what, do you, what is it saying? 7.8%. Which is down, right? It's come in a little bit. It's come bit. down a lot. Come down a lot. It was well over, it was well into the double digits not long ago, I think, right? So, yeah, the initial estimate was 10. So, the so first what, run what's coming in? What's causing it to come down? Why, why so much lower? Uh, equipment spending has come in. I mean, it's still strong, but it was, yeah. it was thought to be like, you know, gangbusters. Yeah. The housing data has softened uh, and the retail sales numbers, you know, that kind of thing to consumer yeah, spending. Weaker. Yeah, a little weaker. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, well, since I have you, uh, I know this is tough. This, no, you're a very modest guy. So the, the tougher question is what you're proud of. So let me ask you, what, what, what uh, forecast are you most disappointed in? It was probably one of the first forecasts I had to, that I did here. And it would, it would be, uh, New Orleans employment after hurricane Katrina. So uh -huh. Katrina hit and I had just started, like I started in July, 2005, and, you know, this massive hurricane hits and devastates Louisiana. We had to come up with a forecast, you know, of what the recovery is going to look like. And I thought it was going to be, you know, this big rebound, like a very V-shaped type recovery. It just never came to fruition. So that is a disappointing. That's a really, that's a really good one because uh, I, I, it's easy to make that mistake, right? Because if we rely in, when we do our forecasts on history, right? So we, in the case of these natural disasters, we go back and look at other natural disasters. Well, what the hell happened after that disaster? You know, you get insurance money coming in, you get federal aid, and you get rebuilding pretty quickly. Uh, and so the economy does come roaring back, right? So you you use that as the basis for your forecast. But in the case of Katrina in uh, New Orleans, it was so devastating and so many people left New Orleans that right. it never came back. Right. So that right. And the flooding, I didn't factor that in and how long that would take to, you know, get the rebuilding and cleanup effort under, underway. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Very good. And of course, with all, all our climate risk work we're doing now, uh, we're spending a lot more energy on trying to understand how uh, acute uh, physical uh, risks, uh, you know, hurricanes and flooding and fires and everything else 
affect the economy. So we're getting, we've gotten a lot much, we've gotten a lot better at it since, uh, since Katrina in 2005. Okay. Uh, Chris, uh, what about you? Uh, what, what forecast, uh, are you, well, you, you, you go whichever one you want to do first. You're most proud of, at least, uh, com- at least uh, c- uh, comfortable with. Um. Uh, sure. So most proud of, at, and I'll, I'll focus on my time at Moody's. Okay. Uh, the one I, uh, the set of forecasts. As opposed that, to Fannie Mae, you mean? You were. Yeah. I why did you screw up at Fannie Mae? Is, is, did you oh, didn't cause ouch, a crisis? Ouch. You caused a financial crisis? Oh, oh, wow. Did, that, did he, did he just say he caused a financial crisis? Ouch. That, uh, no, okay. Didn't All see right. that coming. Uh, <laughs> I've got some proud moments there too. So uh, I bet you do. Yep. Um, this one, I this was one of the first projects I worked on when I uh, when I joined here the team here as well. Uh, this was a forecast around HAMP and HARP. Do you remember those? Uh, oh yes, sir. Programs uh, after the last recession. This is the House Housing Affordable Modification Program and Refinance Program, and we had a project uh, to forecast the take up. Yeah, so I, I, I just found it to be a, a really interesting problem, right? It's greenfield. There's no data you can go back historically and look at. And uh, I just enjoyed the process of piecing together the puzzle. And uh, looking back, actually, the forecasts were, were quite accurate. Because um, HAMP really did not work that well. Because that was kind of you, you took a right. borrower, you ran them through a waterfall, you saw whether on a present value basis made sense to forgive debt. And wow, you were paying attention. Oh, a- oh, I remember that program really well. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. I was excited about it because uh, on paper, you go, this should be pretty good. But actual in practice, it was not. It's kind of sort of like the rental assistance program or, you know, that, uh, that has been on, uh, in place for the uh, pandemic. It, it hasn't really worked out that well, at least so far. Yeah. And, and yeah, what really uh, was, I think it just bought us time. Bought us time. Yeah. And, and what forecast are you least proud of? Uh, all of my stock market uh, predictions over the years. So <laughs> come back to that. That's unfair uh, to you. It's unfair to you. Yeah. yeah. What about your crypto forecast? I'm very proud. Very proud. Um, still yeah. going to zero, but uh, <laughs> okay. okay. Very good. And, and Marissa, what about you? What, what are you proud of? Well, mine is similar to Ryan's. So it was a forecast I made for the New York City economy right after like Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy. So I I can remember that, you know, we were, this was 2008, we were already in the recession. There was already a housing market correction. We were just starting to understand why, sort of. And then all these investment banks started getting into trouble and it was September, Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy. It was a Monday morning. I remember coming into the office my phone was blowing up with reporters asking what's going to happen in New York City. You know, all these thousands and thousands of people are, are going to get laid off. So I looked at my, the forecast that I made the following month. So the October forecast. And over the next five years, I got pretty close to the, the decline, the initial decline in jobs and the timing. And five years out, I was back to the actual employment figure that actually ended up, you know, unfolding. Um, And I remember just having every day just adding up these layoff announcements from all these investment banks and financial and just trying to figure out 
how many are in New York City and what's the odds that, you know, these people find jobs in other sectors or, um, so that's, yeah, that's the, that's the best forecast. I That's made. a good one. That's a good one. You know, certainly the financial crisis was a seminal event for a lot of us, you know, as forecasters, what are you least proud of? What forecast are you? The forecast I made two months later of the same thing <laughs> was worse. <laughs> oh, that is, that's funny. And I think it's because kind of like Ryan's, I actually, so Ryan was anticipating a big rebound after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I was not anticipating a strong rebound in New York City, right? It was like all these, all this talk about banking and the financial segment just shrinking permanently and firms leaving New York, which always seems to happen after any event happens in New York City. There's always this narrative about how everything's going to leave New York and it never happens. So I had a pretty slow long-term recovery and it ended up being much faster in reality. Part of that too was that at that time, and this I think goes back to our error in, in part of, you know, not knowing what would happen with the pandemic is not anticipating the extraordinary fiscal intervention there would be to help the the banking sector and the financial sector back then, you know, all the two big Mm -hmm. TARP and, and all of that. So that came later. And I think that ended up saving a lot more jobs in the financial sector in New York than, than otherwise would have happened. Yeah, those are good ones. You want to know which one I'm most proud of? The forecast I'm most proud of and least proud of? You, do you guys care? Absolutely. No, I want to know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I'm actually most proud of our house price forecasts back prior to the financial crisis in, um, we, in 2005 and really into 06. And we sold economy.com. Who, who, so Marissa, you were with me when economy.com? Chris was not. Ryan, were you with me too at Economy? I was. So the two, was. we were all Economy. We we sold our company to Moody's in when was that? November of '05, right? November of '05, yeah. and we were in the middle of writing this house. We had done all this. We you know we had done all this work with Case Shiller. Case Shiller was like the uh, new repeat sales house price index, you know, and it was captured the entire market and uh, based on actual transactions, we uh, helped finance their development as a company. We modeled it and then we forecast it. And we were in the study that we uh, put together in 06, really kind of, I think it was around spring 06, we were were calling for house prices nationwide to decline. And we, we actually did HPI forecasts across lots of markets you know, adding them up across all these metro areas and the national uh, house price, to cl- uh, uh, we expected national house prices to decline. And I remember we had just joined Moody's and uh, this study, of course, no one at Moody's knew us, right? Who are these guys? They, who's Zandy? What, what the hell is he talking about? National house prices have never declined. This is just this is bogus. It's not good. This is, you know, I heard all kinds of things uh, because the forecasting they were doing was based on these, uh, you know, these uh, kind of Monte Carlo, you know, these are, they're, they're not based on fundamental factors in the housing market. They're based on statistical relationships historically. And you pump out these you know, distributions of forecasts and the, 
basically the middle of the distribution is kind of the average house price forecast over history. And it bears no relationship to the current level of house prices, which if you're in a bubble, that's a big problem, right? Because prices are significantly overvalued. And all you're saying is, oh, they're going to continue to rise at, you know, three, four or 5% per annum. So we come out with this. And, and by the way, if, if you have national house price declines, that's, that's a big problem for mortgage-backed securities that are, you know, being, you know, it was, the RMBS residential mortgage-backed securities being issued at the time, you know, it was just out of control. There was, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of securities being issued and rated, of course. And if you had house price declines, you didn't take a genius to connect the dots and say, oh, uh, there's going to be a problem here, you know, with these securities and the, and the ratings behind the securities. Uh, and of course, there was all kinds of hand-wringing and, you know, debate, got up to the CEO, great guy, Ray McDaniel, who's since retired, and, you know, he goes, well, and it was, a, it was a reasonable question. He goes, he goes to me, he goes, Mark, why uh, is an economist so interested in house prices? You know, kind of when you think about it, now everyone says, well, that's a crazy question. Back then you're going, well, okay, well, what does it have to do with GDP and jobs and all that kind of stuff? You know, and he was not an economist, right? He, you know, he, uh, that wasn't what he did. So he just fundamentally didn't quite get why I was paying attention to this. Fortunately, Ben Bernanke, chair of the Fed, uh, wrote a speech at that point in time. The speech's title was subprime mortgage. And by the way, talk about a forecast error. In that speech, he said, don't worry about housing and, and, and mortgages. This is not going to be that big a deal. And if it, if it is a problem, don't worry. We'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll, solve, you know, we'll step in and solve the problem. Anyway, that was the best thing that ever happened because once uh, uh, Ray saw that, he goes, oh, okay, now I get it. So publish your paper. And we uh, published the paper and uh, it was, you know, created all kinds of stir because we were saying national house prices were going to decline. Uh, and um, I remember uh, it really worked out quite well because when the Financial Inquiry Commission, that's the commission that was established by Congress to investigate why, what happened during the financial crisis, Ray was asked to testify. Uh, I testified previously. He testified with Warren Buffett, who is a major shareholder in, in Moody's and uh, he, he brought up the study. He said, look, look, you know, we, 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 we said that this was going to be a problem and there, and there was a study. So I was very proud of that study. Uh, but here's the thing I was I, I'm most, uh, uh, um, disappointed in, in terms of forecast is I only, our forecast was for only a 3% decline in national house prices not a 30% decline in national house prices. And this is a good lesson, fantastic lesson, right? Because, you know, some of the markets that we were modeling, uh, uh, you know, we had a price decline. I remember Miami, house price declines. Our model said prices are going to decline 90%. Think about that for three seconds, one second, 90%. That's what the model said. And I go, I, I remember talking to Celia, the, one of our housing analysts who's still with us. Uh, I go, Celia, if we come out with that, no one's, everyone's going to think we're nuts. We're crazy. They're not going to pay any attention to anything we say. So we adjusted the model uh, result and said down 30 for Miami. And that got us to down three for the nation. Guess what Miami house prices declined during peak to trough in the financial crisis? 90%. 90%. So what's the, what's the, what is, what is, what do you take away from that? Trust your model. Damn right. Uh, you know, you have to have the courage of your uh, conviction in your models and use them. And by the way, this gets back, 
Ryan, I'm coming right back at you with the, the housing starts forecast. So here we are on the other side of the financial crisis. Housing starts are, you know, 600K. I don't know, very low. It uh, clearly didn't make any sense relative to underlying demand, which was improving. Vacancy rates come crashing in, you know, and the model says, hey, we need more housing starts. So, you know, I learned my lesson from the financial crisis. And I said, we're not changing this forecast. Yeah, I understand there are things that are not in the model that we you can't really measure or forecast like, you know, supply constraints and zoning issues and that kind of thing, permitting costs. But, and, but I, you know, I, I stuck with the, uh, with the housing starts forecast and it was you know, obviously too strong, way too strong. But here we are in you know, 2021 and we've got an affordable housing crisis, right? The model said we should have been building, the de- you know, we had the demand to build, you know, but we didn't build for you know, reasons that we didn't capture in the model. And here we are with a, an affordable housing crisis. Uh, you know, we have a shortage of affordable homes you know, to the tune of 1.56 million units, about a worth, year's worth of supply. But anyway, good lesson. Um, do you think people out there listening to this podcast are gonna care about these stories? Do they think that you find that interesting? We we find it interesting. Do you think they'll find it interesting? I don't know. Absolutely. 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 Okay. All right. We, we wax on. Hey, I have a bunch of other questions though. Uh, let me ask you this uh, question. Key question. Um, you know, uh, people uh, uh, in business and government, they, um, you know, they value forecasts. Uh, they have to have forecasts. They have, you know, everyone forecasts uh, for budgets, for planning, for risk management, that kind of thing, for uh, loan loss provisioning. Uh, but they really value forecasts, I think, around recessions, right? And, you know, that's when things really become an issue. The economy really matters. But economists are not, in, I'd say we're in this camp too, good at predicting recessions. We just have a hard time doing it. And we don't have the, here, we don't have the courage of our convictions and say, hey, recession is coming, you know, a year from now or two years from now. Why, why do you suppose that is? Why can't we forecast, we collective, we economists forecast recessions very well? Do you have a- Well, you, you actually have been saying, you did. You didn't get the cause right, but you did say there'd be a recession in, well, you were saying June, 2020, right? So I you're did. Th- yeah. I, thank you. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for pointing out. No, Marissa and I, I believe that. that prediction deserves an asterisk, just like Barry Bonds' home run total. Big asterisk next to it. <laughs> Why? What, what, that, what? Okay. It, we wouldn't have had a recession if it wasn't for a pandemic. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yield curve did invert, right? So oh. yield curve inverted. Okay, but back to my question. Uh, you, 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 with that aside, Marissa, you're right. I, I did, and of course it was a half in jest, right? Because you know, how, how could I predict a recession? Uh, you know, in Jan- June on June twentieth, twenty twenty. I was trying to make a point. The point was, look, there's a boatload of risk out there, and you should, you know, uh, you should. Uh, 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 behave accordingly, act accordingly, be cautious. I don't know exactly how we'd end up in a recession on June 20th, 2020, but hey, guys, the preconditions for this are coming into place. But but it wasn't half in jest. So, but why can't economists get it right? What do you think is going on? I've got a theory, but I've been waxing on a lot here. So does anyone else have a theory as to so what's going on? Why There's randomness in the world, right? That we can't predict uh, sporting events either, right? Plenty of data. 
Um, so there are random shocks and animal spirits, all the things that we've identified in the past. So the, the specific event occurring is, is very difficult to predict, but I think we have gotten better, certainly at predicting conditions, right? To your point, we can look at different indicators and identify the preconditions for a recession, whether or not that it actually occurs, right? We can at least send out the warning signals. And I think that is, I think that is helpful for the market to, uh, to know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we, we couldn't have predicted the pandemic, right? So that's a shock. I mean, uh, in that case, I don't, I don't think that it was, it didn't matter whether the preconditions for a recession were in place or not, we would have had a recession because it was such a, a cataclysmic event. But, you know, 9-11, I mean, if you go back to that recession in 01, I don't think uh, the dating cycle committee of the National Bureau of Economic Research, the arbiters of recession, would have said, uh, that was a recession without 9-11. And that certainly could predict that. Um, yeah, so you're saying randomness. You're saying what an economist might call an exogenous shock, something outside the system. Some others would call it a black swan, I guess, event, you know, something out there on the tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. You kind of sort of know it's, a, you know, we, we knew that there's pandemics out there, but there's no way to know that you're going to have a pandemic in March of 2020, right? You just that you can't predict. You just can't do that. So I think that's yeah. fair. Any, any other reasons why we can't, or we have a hard time as economists predicting recessions? Any other theories? What about, you know, my view, my thought is um, recessions ultimately at the end of the day are a loss of faith, a loss of, of faith in the economy, in, in your financial well-being. And that's very much an emotional event, right? It's not generally a numbers and sense event. You know, the numbers and cents aren't working all that great. You know that. But, you know, it's, the, it's when everyone kind of collectively gets to a place where they say, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be really bad. And they all run for the doors or, or maybe the better analogy, they run for the bunker at the same time. We all run into the bunker, stop spending, stop investing, stop hiring, you know, stop doing what we do, you know, when times are, you know, normal, typical. And, uh, you know, well, we go we go into recession, and that that's why I think you know one of the really good uh, I don't know if it's foolproof but pretty close indicate near uh, immediate indicators of recession is when consumer confidence measures you know the surveys of consumer confidence like the conference board survey the nearest Michigan goes south in a big way right they fall big time definitively not for one month but for two three months and then you know we're toast you know we're in recession because we had a loss of faith so I think. That you know, there's there's animal spirits, right? You know, in that case, uh, the the kind of the dark spirits, you know, take over and we go back into recession. Uh, we go into recession. So I, that you, that's that is inherently. How do you predict that, right? I mean, how do you how do you predict that kind of emotional res collective emotional response that you know happens when when you go in recessions? Any others? Any other reasons why we might miss it? What about policy errors? Do you think policy errors? Here, I'll give you, I, here's my theory about the financial crisis, a theory, and it's probably overstated, but just for didactic purposes. You know, the, the, the things were going badly. Housing was overvalued. We had a bubble. It was bursting. Prices were declining. I was doing damage uh, to uh, consumers. They were getting nervous, trying to create problems for, for, the, for the banking system. But maybe... Maybe we wouldn't have, well, maybe we've probably gone into recession, but maybe we wouldn't have had a cataclysmic financial crisis if not for a series of policy mistakes. And what I mean by that is, as financial institution after financial institution got into trouble, 
policymakers, you know, the, the Treasury Paulson under Bush uh, uh, started with Bear Stearns when it failed early on. Each of the institutions that got into trouble was treated differently. You know, the creditors of the institution, the debt holders, the equity holders, the, you know, the, the, the investors in the short, uh, uh, the commercial paper or the short-term funding that was being used. And at some point, and I think the point was really with Lehman Brothers, when we, they took over Lehman Brothers and they said, we're not, all the creditors of Lehman Brothers are going to lose, all the equity holders, all the debt, we're not bailing out anybody. That's when everyone ran for the door. And that's when we had the financial system collapsed and needed to bail out and we had a financial crisis. I would view that as a, you know, I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, I'm not saying anyone could have done any better, you know, under these trying circumstances, but that feels like a policy error to me. You know, we didn't treat these institutions. And in fact, you know, in the Dodd-Frank legislation after the, pen, after the financial crisis, um, uh, th there, there was an effort to put together a kind of a, a cookbook of, you know, here's how you, you, know, you, you work with troubled institutions so that we don't have the same kind of uh, policy mistake in, in, the, in the future that we had uh, during the crisis. So I, I think that's another example. I yeah, will so say- The inconsistency of the treatment, right? That's, that's the, the issue. Consistency of the treatment, the consistency of if it was well known ahead of time that that would be the outcome, then investors yeah. would have acted differently. We may not have yeah. had that outcome. By the way, I, I, before the pandemic hit, I was writing a book, uh, The Next Recession. I really was. I'd written three chapters to go into kind of some of these subject matters, but I kind of put it on hold. Got to figure out how to resurrect it now in the wake of the pandemic. So All right, the I know. Next recession. Yeah. Uh, was it was the next one? Yeah. Oh, well... I just got that question this morning, and I and I the answer I gave was I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. No, no. Well, none of the preconditions are in place. You know, uh, yield curve is fine. You know, there's plenty of room to run here. You know, abstracting from the pandemic, going down a very dark path here. You know, it's hard to argue that or think that we're going to have a. And everyone's on high alert. Policy is. You know, fiscal and monetary policies, they, they got their foot flat on the accelerator. So it's premature to call it the next recession. Uh, but I'll, I'll call, ask, ask me a year from now. Uh, that, that might be a very different uh, kind of uh, forecast. Okay, um, here's uh, another question. I know we're already getting a little long in the tooth here. On this, this is actually, for me, very fascinating forecast, uh, podcast. I hope it is for everybody else. Um, do you... Uh, do you guys have any kind of forecast rules that you think are, are important to good forecasting? You know, kind of uh, uh, things that you hold on to uh, when you are doing a forecast that, uh, you, you know, a discipline that you use to make sure that you don't make mistakes that you have in the past. Do you have any, any, any rules that, you, that, you, that you've adopted? I'll start. Uh, yeah. One rule I have is uh, keep it simple, right? Uh, the complex models are very attractive, right? They got all the bells and whistles, but uh, they're also very, tend to be fragile. So if I'm gonna use a model, well, first of all, I won't use just one model. I may use multiple models, but uh, within each model, I, you know, I have a bias towards uh, a very simple model or more parsimonious structure. Yep. I, mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Kind of sort of like a corollary to Occam's razor, sort of. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, the, the, the most straightforward explanation is probably the right explanation. Don't, don't overcomplicate things. Okay. That makes sense. What about, do you rely on your models too? I mean, uh, do you think, 
uh, uh, people get into mis into make start making forecast errors if they don't rely on the models and the tools that they have, or or not? I think so. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think the model uh, provides some discipline. And again, it may be your model, maybe it may be multiple models. Ideally, right? My second rule is uh, three is better than one. Yeah. Right? So, looking at a range of models and a range of uh, scenarios is going to help you to bound the uh, the forecast better. I right. think um, you ab you absolutely want to leave some room for judgment, but the the models instill that type of discipline that you, your your story illustrates, right? That you're able to look at things a little bit more scientifically, understanding there's lots of variability, but at least the model helps to organize the information in a, in a logical format that your judgment or your assumptions on their own may not be able to. Yep. Good. Any, any, Marissa, any rules that you use when you're uh, doing your forecasting or guiding others when they do their forecasting? Yeah, I, I agree with what Chris said. I think the default is always to trust the model. And unless you have a really compelling reason to believe that the model is wrong, then, and that you should override it, then you stick to the model. I think we've seen, we were talking about this the other day. I think I've, I've seen that a lot of times the most accurate forecasts are the ones that don't involve any human intervention or very little. A lot of times when people really start doing a whole bunch of overlays and judgment and looking at the news every day and changing the forecast around, they tend to be worse than if they just stuck with what the model told them from the beginning. So I kind of think less is more as well, which I think is kind of what Chris was saying. And then the other thing I would say is just when you're trying to forecast a macroeconomic variable, whatever it is, you have to really understand the data. You have to really understand what it is that you're forecasting. What is the source? How is it put together? How is it compiled? What are the downfalls of it? You know, what are its uh, strengths and weaknesses in terms of what it's measuring? Like, I mean, Ryan is the best at this, right? Like he knows the data inside and out where he's saying, oh, I don't use UI claims every July because of the auto manufacturing retooling. I mean, that takes a lot of experience and time to understand the data to that extent that you can understand how these individual industries would, would um conspire to, to move an employment number. I mean, that's, that's getting pretty deep into it. And I think the deeper you can get into it, typically the better you are at forecasting something. Absolutely. Makes total sense. Ryan, any uh, rules that you use? No, I agree with everything Marissa and, and Chris are saying. I think my rules are a little bit different because we have, I have yeah. a significantly different forecast horizon than yeah. Marissa, Chris, and you. you know, I'm, I'm looking out one month one week. So for me, more is better. So I try to get as much information, high frequency information as I can to put into these models. And you know, we quickly had to scramble when the pandemic hit, you know, all the models I had just, they weren't going to work because we've never seen anything like this. We had to turn to alternative data, you know, quickly started using uh, Google mobility, home-based data to forecast some of these high frequency indicators. So yeah, I mean, more, more information is better. I got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, one other thing I think is important is uh, a consistency. You know, our clients and, and when people use forecasts more broadly, they don't want to be whipsawed. They don't want, 
oh, it's great this month. It's not so great next month. It's great this month. It's not so well. What is it exactly? So, and a lot about a lot of the forecast depends on the underlying assumptions that you make. You know, the exot so-called exogenous inputs, the things that are outside the model that affect the model result, results in the forecast. So, monetary policy, uh, fiscal policy. These are you know inherently assumptions we're making, and we have. I, I think a very important rule is we have to have a very high bar uh, bef- uh, in our thinking around the assumption before we change them. And, and I have in my mind this two-third probability rule that I will not change a major assumption in the, mo- in the forecast, you know, uh, the Fed changing monetary, uh, when it's going to raise interest rates, or this $3.5 trillion fiscal package that Congress is debating I will not change assumptions around those things until I feel like uh, that there's a two-thirds probability that we're going to get a different uh, set of assumptions, you know, going forward. So that way we we have consistency and stability in our forecast, and we don't uh, typically get whipsawed. And there there might be cases, I'm sure there are, but generally we don't. And there there uh, I think uh, we serve. Uh, I think it leads to more accurate forecasts, and I think it also leads to uh, you know, more useful forecasts for the people who are using them for their, you know, for whatever they're using them for. That leads to another quick question, and that is uh, forecast accuracy. How do you think about that? Um, do you think, uh, how, for, first of all, you know, there's, it's kind of an epistemological question. What is forecast accuracy, and how important in your mind is that? I, I know that's a tough question, but I'll, I, I ask tough questions. Anyone got a view on on that? Marissa, do you have a thought around forecast accuracy? Well, I mean, if you if you're talking about, did you hit the number right on the nose? That's almost never going to happen. Well, Ryan, it happens for Ryan a lot, I guess. <laughs> but when you're forecasting out a year, you know, a year and a half, three years that, you know, the forecast is not going to be right on the the nose. So I think it's more about the, the narrative that you tell. Well, what is, you know, tell me the story about what's going to happen and how this is going to play out and how severe it's going to possibly be. What are the probabilities that it's X versus Y? I think it's, at least with our clients, I think that they're valuing more that, um, the, the framework in which we're placing the forecast rather than holding us to hitting a specific number because most people understand that that's not going to happen. I, I think that's a great point. Chris, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, just to, I would say it really depends on the application. And I'm, I'm thinking of Cecil as one example, right? The accounting rule, <clears throat> the new accounting rule you mentioned. If you read the documentation, the, the guidelines, it doesn't say anything about accuracy. It's a, it, it talks about reasonable and supportable. Right, the forecast has to be reasonable and support. So it's that's really the emphasis. You're coming up. There's an acknowledgement that you're not going to hit the number, as Marissa said, and it's really about coming up with a, an approach that you know meets the smell test. Is something that is a, a reasonable expectation of what could happen. Understanding there's a lot of uncertainty around that. So I think that's what we actually are aiming for in our in our forecasting process. Got it. You know, I I, I think forecast accuracy is important, and I don't mean to sound slippery here. Uh, because I do think, you know, it is important that if you're not, if you're consistently 
not accurate, then you're doing something wrong, right? I mean, you're, you're, the way you're thinking about things, the framework, the model, the data, whatever, you know, you got it wrong. So, you know, accuracy uh, is important, but actually measuring accuracy, that's a pretty slippery concept. I mean, you know, I, you know, for many years, I did a lot of regional economic forecasting. That's where this company started. It was really in forecasting what was happening to regional economies. You know, that was before economy.com, we were regional financial associates. So, we, you know, we were regional. And employment is key. The employment data, the employment data that, Marissa, you put together for the world, we relied on and consumed on, consumed, you know, in great detail. But that employment data is subject to mass revision, you know, particularly when you're talking about a metropolitan area or a state, because it's based on a sample of establishments or households. And it's just a sample. And of course, it's, you know, not the universe. And once a year, the BLS goes out and collects the universe based on unemployment insurance records, so-called benchmarks, it's uh, survey-based information to that uh, count, universal count. And you can get some pretty massive revisions, particularly in, when the economy is going up and down and all around and get very different perspectives. So if you're saying, well, are you, was your employment forecast accurate? Well, accurate in measuring what exactly? The initial estimate that the BLS put out or the, the second estimate or the third estimate or the final estimate? By the way, the final estimate feels like it's never final. It's like five years after the fact, it's final kind of thing. So you know what's important for the client is, is your forecast giving them a sense of where this economy is headed in the strength of the economy or the weakness of the economy, or what is the weakness of the economy? What's, what's going wrong? And also just telling clients about the data itself. What data should you be using or not be using? And if you're using this data, you know what should you be thinking about when you're using it in your own revenue forecasting or budgeting or policy analysis or whatever it is? So forecast accuracy is, you know, it's easy to say, but it's a very slippery uh, concept. And what's important is if you're giving people who use those forecasts, you know, are, you know, fundamentally a sense of, you know, you know, what's driving it, what's the framework, is it, as Chris said, reasonable and supportable? And at the end of the day, is it giving you directionally, you know, the, the, the reality of what's going on here? This is a good economy. This is a bad economy. I, I think that's what's, what's most important. Okay. I know we're running on, but I don't care. We're going to keep, keep going unless you guys have, you know, Marissa doesn't have happy hour for a while. She's going to go surfing pretty soon. So, uh, we, we're we're going to keep going. And you guys, listeners, if you don't like this, you can tune out. You can tune out. But we're, we're, I'm having, I think this has been, this is very informative. And I got a little bit more to uh, talk about here. So I want to know, uh, each of you, uh, whether you are a hedgehog or a fox or something in between. Now, a hedgehog is someone who's got embedded in their minds a framework for how the economy works. It's immutable. And everything has to fit in that, and all my forecasts revolve around that view of the world. Or a fox, fox is I'm you know taking in all this data, all this information. I'm going to change my mind, you know, based on recent data points. Uh, you know, kind of bringing it all together, use my intuition, maybe use some models, and come up with a forecast. But I don't have this kind of broader you know, kind of fundamental framework for how the economy works. It's, uh, you know, it's more based on, you know, what's happening in the, in the recent past. So 
what are you guys, uh, or you can come up with a different animal if you want, but you know, and maybe you have, but uh, 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 Marissa, are you a hedgehog or a fox or something in between? So, so you did, so the listeners know, you did tell us you were going to ask this question. I did. An online quiz to find out what I am. And I am three quarters hedgehog, one quarter fox. Oh, I love that. I love that. You did an online. What Marissa that just went second level. Hold on. What does that mean exactly? You did a survey of whom? Uh, uh, I don't know. Just myself. I Googled. I Googled it and there was something, some, you know, business insider website had like a what? assessment that you could take to tell you whether you're a fox or a hedgehog. Oh, oh I see. There's this, oh, the inside, business insider has a, a, a actual tool, a survey you can go on and take I think it. it was business insider. Yeah. Oh, that is really yeah. interesting. That is, I'm going to have to go take, sir, you're three quarters hedgehog. I would have said, I would have forecasted that by the way. Yeah. As a joke, yeah. you guys should be <laughs> laughing. Where's the soundtrack? That was like a, that was a Colbert quality joke right there. We'll ask Ben to uh, splice that in. Yeah, thank you. Right. A little drum roll. <laughs> A little symbol. drum roll. All right. Hey, Mark, All right. What's Chris? What's your forecast for Chris? Chris is, I'd say he's 50-50. Like most things in, in life, he's 50-50. <laughs> yeah, he's 50-50. He's a 50% hedgehog, 50%. I think, I think that's, what would you say, Ryan? What would you say he is? Maybe a, little, say, maybe a little more hedgehog. Yeah, I was going to say more hedgehog. Like Two-thirds, one-third. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Chris, what do you What do you say? I think I'm a mix, but uh, I would actually go with more of the fox. Than, uh, a little bit more He's, fox than hedgehog. Did you see the way he said that? I'm, I'm the fox. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Really? Okay, so uh, defend, t- tell me the, the percentages and, you know. 60-40. Okay, 60-40. It's pretty good. And why yeah. do you say that? Well, so as you, you know, as you said, the hedgehog think is really dedicated to one idea and one, yeah, one thought, really focused on it. Versus the fox has many ideas, many, and I think I, yeah. I tend to, to look at uh, a problem or look at a forecast from a lot of different angles versus, you know, sticking to one uh, worldview. So got it, got it. Uh, I, I thought you were okay. I had a joke, <laughs> but I'm not going to say it um, because it wasn't Colbert quality. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, Ryan. Oh, Ryan. Goddamn. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Ryan. Let me guess. Ryan is. He masquerades as 30% hedgehog, 70% fox. In reality, deep down when he's, you know, uh, in bed thinking about things, he's 80% hedgehog, 20% fox. But, you know, he he, he masquerades as this fox. Do I have that right, Ryan? No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like 90-10 fox. 90-10 90-10 Fox. Yeah. That's, that's, that makes sense. Yep. Okay. I believe that. That makes sense. Cause you know, th- this, and this is an important point, I think it really depends on your horizon. Yeah. Right. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, if your horizon is your term, you know, next month, next quarter, I think Fox makes a lot of sense, right? It doesn't really matter what the structure of the economy is. I mean, no, no, not at all. If you're forecasting out three to five years, I'd say probably better to be a hedgehog more, Correct. more of a hedgehog than a Fox. Uh, and if you're thinking out, you know, 25, 30 years, then you better not be either one of those. 
He's definitely not a fox, and I'm not sure a hedgehog's any good either. <laughs> you know, I'm not. We got to come up with a different animal for that kind of forecasting, uh, because that, at that point, technology changes, and you know, the society changes, and all kinds of things change. Very, very difficult to, to get nailed down. And by the way, that that leads to a very interesting point. In my view, I'm curious if you have a different view. I think our accuracy is highest in a horizon that's probably around three to five years, right? Maybe maybe three, five, seven, because you know, near term you get asset bubbles and policy changes and you know events that kind of scramble things. Longer than seven years, and you have technological changes uh, and uh, you know big political upheavals. Uh, but three, five, seven—that's kind of the sweet spot, I think, right? Because you know you don't have the near-term noise, and you have this long-term structural shift, and that's where our models, I think, work best. Do you? How, would you agree with that, roughly speaking? Mm -hmm. I would. Okay. Yeah. And don't try to change the subject yet. Yeah, yeah. We got to <laughs> guess what you are. Well, I answered the question. I, I, I am a, there, there's a word for, there's uh, this uh, being that uh, evolves over time, you know, changes uh, form depending on the horizon. So near, if I have to do a near-term forecast, I'm definitely going to be more of a fox. If I'm going to do a long-term forecast, I'm more of a hedgehog. But if, I, if you nail me down and say, Mark, on average, through time, you know, what is the percentage? I'd say I'm more hedgehog than fox. I'd say I'm, I'm 80, 85% hedgehog. I really am. Because I believe fundamentally, it takes an awful lot to change the structure of this economy. It, it, it has not fundamentally changed in the period since World War II. The way it operates, you know, the principles under which it operates, the, you know, the mechanisms that drive things, the, the way we conduct policy and think about the world, I think, you know, it, it, uh, it, it would take an awful lot for me to change, you know, the way I think about things. Is, is, that, how, is that how you perceive me? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You have got these uh, strong rules of thumb that you, yeah. that you follow as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Tenure's going really to sprinkle. I would have sprinkled a little sloth in there. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> very slow to incorporate changes to the tenure forecast. That's true. Which I could have said was my most disappointing forecast, the ten-year, you know, coming after the financial crisis. But we won't go there. Hey, I, I do want to end. We got to end this thing. I, I could go on. This was a fantastic conversation, and we have a lot more to talk about. But you know, you know what really annoys me? It annoys me when people say I don't forecast. Oh, everybody forecasts. That, uh, there's a great there's a great word for that. Um, what is it? Bullshit. That's the word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No. Uh, oh, you know, I got a better word for it. Flap doodle. Do you know what flap doodle means? It's a great word, by the way. Flap doodle. Good SAT word. Nonsense. Nonsense. That is nonsense. All we do all day long as human beings is forecast. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say knowledge is the ability to forecast well. By the way, I picked the word well, uh, you know, carefully. It's not accurately. It's well. It's forecast well, because, uh, you know, we all know the sun comes up every day. Why do we know that? Because we've got a lot of data points to say it. We've got a theory to suggest why it's going to happen. But we're forecasting that someday it's not going to come up. I assure you, you know, it could be three billion years from now, but it's not coming up. But it's a good forecast. It's a good forecast. And so I think forecasting is a I'll go so far as to say this. And maybe, you know, this is definitely self-serving. It makes me just feel good. Forecasting is a noble profession. Because 
uh, it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of hard work to do it and a lot of failure to do it. It's very humbling, but at the end of the day, it's, it is the most important thing that we do. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we do economic forecasting, uh, others do all, the, all kinds of other, there's all kinds of forecasting, but that's, that is what, uh, all of us are, are, are doing. So when someone gets on and says, Hey, I don't do a forecast. I, you know, that I find, you know, just, I guess the word's annoying. It's just annoying. That's not true. Not the case. We all forecast and we all are working hard to make a better forecast. So with that bit of a rant, um, that was a rant. Um, thank you. Uh, it was, this was a great podcast and we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to know what topics you would like us to tackle next. Uh, we've got a poll. Uh, you can go to economy.com, see the little uh, button there for inside economics and go there and let us know what you want us to talk about next. Uh, can't wait to next week. Talk to you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.